by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for powerboats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com. It's 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 a.m. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 102.9 in Bangor. I'm Alan Sprague, and that's Mike Joyce over there, the two rusty anchors of Boat Talk here with uh, Giffy Full again, too. Welcome back, Giffy. Thank Giffy, you. Giffy is here to make sure we uh, don't lie too much. He's a he's our color commentator. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval, and uh, I was contemplating things lately about uh, the gas prices and all that sort of stuff that are making making. Um, <laughs> Alan's getting a cell phone call right now. I don't believe he'll be answering that. No, we're gonna put that on hold. <laughs> anyway, talking about. Uh, Fuel prices and the and the, the way people are trying to make things more economical, more fuel efficient. They like to take a look at back at the boat builders who have been um, making boats. As particularly the uh, the Spanish, they've been making boats for hundreds of years now. They'll get whole, thousands of miles per gallon. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> I wondered where he's going with that, Giffy. It is. Uh, you it's never a know. Pretty serious show, really, and we're going to be doing a lot of. Uh, Serious talk later, but there's also a lot of little new things going on in the news right now, and Mike has the pile right there in front of him. Yeah, we're, the big subject this morning is uh, the fisheries, uh, particularly ground fish, but they're all related, and permit banking is uh, what we'll be talking about this morning. There's already some people that have been, uh, you know, uh, tune, uh, told to tune in and uh, call in, so it could, be, uh, it could be interesting. But we always like to talk about a few uh, other Marine items first. If we got time, we'll take a few minutes this morning. Our friend Diver Ed over to Bar Harbor. Diver Ed uh, runs the Dive-In Theater, and he lost his boat last fall, and he's built a new one. It's called the Starfish Enterprise, and Diver Ed's back in business, and uh, he's a, a boat talk buddy and also a, a former guest. The Diver Ed story is pretty cool because of the community support. When they lost their boat, they lost a lot of gear. The boat was insured, but the gear wasn't. And uh, so anyway, they considered hanging it up. And the community's support was so overwhelming that by the time they got to the bank, where they did not qualify, the bank says, well, all these people love you so much, I guess we got to give you some money. And they did, and they built the boat. Well, that's and, the nice uh, thing about local economy. You yeah. You have a little heart there. That can still happen. Isn't that a cool thing? So uh, Dive Red's back in business. There's a link on our website, isn't there? DiveRed.com. Yes, there is, actually. I believe there is, yeah. And that's the point of keeping it local. Yeah. Yep. BoatTalk.org. You can get to uh, DiveRed.com. And apparently, I haven't been, but I know Ed, and he's, he's a character, and 
uh, believe that is a very entertaining trip to go out and uh, see what they do. Uh, video cameras underwater. They bring up stuff the kids can touch if they want to. Oh, yeah. The underwater superhero. He yeah, underwater one. superhero, our friend Diver <laughs> Ed. So. Here's an interesting one. They're going to make some windmills out on uh, the Fox Islands, Vinyl Haven. Actually broken down. North Haven, yeah, yeah, and they're just starting that now. Um, you know, there's uh, wind farms proposed all over the state of Maine, and a lot of them, surprisingly enough, uh, can be somewhat controversial. Uh, while everybody sort of believes in alternative energy, a lot of people don't want a windmill in their backyard. They don't want to see them. Yeah, right on Vinyl Haven, they've got two excellent places to get uh, generation from current. Yeah, and right now they're on an underwater cable from the mainland. Sometimes it fails, and uh, then they have no electricity. So they had a vote there between Vinyl Haven and North Haven, and the vote was 383 to 5 in favor, which is kind of an unprecedented ratio for, uh, you know, um, people and to, to support this project without reservations and of course now they have to go through uh, they have you know work on permitting and financing just like everybody else but they're building it and uh, here's the thing I think they uh, get the self-reliance angle of it they know what it's like when the electricity is not there in the cable this will also stabilize their electric energy uh, rates for years to come and in uh, peak times when there's uh, not a lot of people on the island in the winter they can sell power to central main power and still import it in the summer if they need it. And again, uh, 383 to 5 in favor, because they kind of get the, you know... Sounds like a revolt. Oh, dear. <laughs> so anyway, and I, I do not find a windmill. Uh, you know, I find them interesting to look at when we go by. I've uh, delivered a lot of boats that have little wind generators on them. They're noisy. Yeah. And uh, kind of, you know, they're kind of a pain on the boat. But uh, so I anyway. still like... Giphy's favoring the tidal power. You just don't see that. And it's going to be underwater. And yeah, we'll hopefully talk about the eSport thing more in the future. There was another vote out in, uh, on Islesboro off of Lincolnville there. And an uh, island resident who uh, owns several properties, he's a fisherman, wants to start a crab picking business in a house he already owns. He wants to employ a couple people, let alone the people that catch the crabs. And so they put it to a vote, and his neighbors voted it down because it might attract birds and smell and flies and, uh, you know, not in my backyard sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So isn't that kind of interesting? I guess they don't need crab uh, salad as much as those other people need electricity. And, um, not in my backyard, apparently. So, uh, you know, what do you make of that? There's a boat show coming up in Rockland in between now and the next boat talk. The uh, Main Boats and Harbors is uh, putting on their annual in the Water Boat Show, August 7th to 9th at the Harbor Park in Rockland. This year's theme is traditional, uh, I'm sorry, tradition shapes innovation is going to be the theme. Phone's already ringing, isn't it? Um, we have, uh, yeah, the Nature Conservancy on it. Um, we can go through the list. What else we got here? Let's think. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, two uh, fish things real quick in uh, Nevada. <laughs> They've cracked down on desert lobster. Desert now, lobster. This is not scorpions. No, and we were just talking with Giffy. Uh, you know, there's, uh, of course, the lobstermen around here are kind of on the ropes right now in several different ways. But uh, in Nevada, there's a little town called Mina. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And for 15 years, these people have been raising these lobsters. Desert, they call them desert lobsters. They're actually a crayfish. And they're selling them live and boiling them in their cafe. They get to be up in a pound and a quarter 
each, so yeah. it's fairly large. And they get like $15 a pound for them, too. And they're in the middle of nowhere and have no other business, so, you know. Um, the state tried to permit how they could sell the lobsters, only uh, you couldn't sell a live lobster to me and you and let me drive away because I might release it into the wild. And it might threaten the Railroad Valley Springfish, a endangered species. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a year or so ago, the state of Nevada came in in bulletproof vests with weapons and chlorine bleach and killed all the lobsters. <laughs> And so uh, these people, with guns, huh? you can buy the same lobsters online or in Texas, but not in Nevada now. And these people are, uh, you know, uh, kind of up in arms. They've made a sign, Nevada, liquor, legal 24 hours, gambling legal 24 hours, prostitution legal 24 hours, lobsters, not legal. And, of course, we want to buy Maine lobster anyway. So, But anyway, there's trouble in the Nevada lobster fishery, go figure. And uh, other fishery news I find kind of interesting this morning. The uh, month full of rain that we had um, really uh, put a hurting on the clam flats and a lot of red tide closure. Yeah, it's the worst in several years, I heard the, yeah. the officials say. They're apparently uh, not all closed, though. And, for instance, over in Trenton, uh, the flats have been open, but everybody and his brother has flocked to Trenton. And they're having a meeting in Trenton at noontime today to try to restrict access to their... Uh, their flats to yeah. local people and the thing is basically the same story uh, I think we're gonna be talking with the lobstermen with the people we're talking about permit banking on ground fish this morning um, the pie is getting awful small but people are still pretty fierce about getting their slice you know well it's another problem there's a lot of people out of work and they're gonna do anything they can do to subsist and uh, just the way it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. We also uh, got to mention uh, Phil Bolger, the famous boat designer. Uh, a listener called and alerted us to uh, Phil Bolger. Uh, he shot himself. Yeah, I guess uh, dementia runs in his family, and he was starting to see the fact that uh, he was probably going to be getting it too. Didn't like the uh, the ending that dementia can bring you to. Yeah, he did not want to be of any diminished capacity, so uh, he took it in his own hands and uh, without even telling his partner, because I guess there's legal complications there, uh, shot himself one morning. And uh, Phil was renowned for his boat designs. He designed uh, 680 odd boats, including a folding schooner, the world's smallest dinghy, and HMS Rose that was in the movie Master and Commander. And uh, he designed some fantastically ugly square. I mean, <laughs> some giffies against yeah. ugly boats. Yeah, ugly boat. Yeah. yeah. Life's too short to own an ugly boat. Yeah, but <laughs> but Phil Bolger's thing was let's take a piece of plywood. It's great material. Now, how much can we get out of this piece of plywood, and how can we make it float in the most efficient way that will hold the most volume and sail? The, you know, mm -hmm. and he did what he called some box boats that mm -hmm. were just, I mean, fantastically ugly, but very very practical. And uh, he used to have a column in, what was it, Small Boat Journal, where he'd call in and ask him a design question, and he'd make you a, a cartoon, uh, a design. And I'm telling you, uh, he was a man of some great talent, and he didn't want to lose it, and he shot himself in the head last month. So, Phil Bolger. Well, well what are we doing now, Alan? Okay, let's get around to the fisheries. We have two gentlemen on the line waiting to talk with us already. Uh, we're going to speak with... 
Jeff Smith, who works for the Nature Conservancy. He is uh, the director of their fisheries program. I'll let him give the official title of that. And Glenn Libby, who is the uh, president of the Mid-Coast Fishermen's Association down in Port Clyde. Can we explain one other thing here? Um, this Boat Talk is calling show. We have two lines oh, available yes. for on, on air here. Um, there are other people who have been alerted to this subject who are already interested in calling. Um, we've already mentioned two people on the phone. That doesn't allow anybody else to call in. So we're going to have to try to juggle right. uh, phone lines here a little bit and be a little patient. We'll try so. to keep um, Jeff on the line and we'll, we'll listen to Glenn first, but we'll have to uh, let Glenn go. Actually, he's pretty busy today anyway, counting yep. fish. One so more be... note, uh, WERU is going to be off the air after Boat Talk for transmitter maintenance again. And uh, so anyway, we'll uh, uh, be doing boat talk here and then leaving the air. And, and again, we have limited phone lines this right. morning. So. Well, the, I'll give you the phone number right now because it's a hard one to remember. You want to write this down so you can get in line to call in. The number is 1-866-625-9378. And we'll say good morning to Jeff Smith of the Nature Conservancy. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for uh, allowing me to join today. Okay. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you come, you're coming in just fine. Glad to hear it. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain this uh, program that you have to help uh, help the fin fishing industry. Sure, I'd be happy to do so. Uh, first of all, my name is Jeff Smith, and I'm the Marine Program Director for the Nature Conservancy uh, here in Brunswick. And what we're um, on to talk about today is we're just launching a uh, program with some partners of ours, including the Penobscot East Resource Center, in Stonington, the Island Institute in Rockland, and the Mid-Coast Fishermen's Association. And in real simple terms, what we're doing is we've, uh, we've gone out and we've purchased a couple of groundfish permits, and our plan is to uh, make the days at sea and the access associated with those permits available for fishermen to do uh, collaborative research and to developing more uh, selective fishing gear, and then to helping to improve our understanding of the uh, distribution and abundance of groundfish on the main coastal shelf. I think uh, listeners to this show understand that uh, groundfish populations on the shelf are in pretty rough shape, and as a result, the fishing communities that depend on them are struggling to get by. And uh, we saw this permit banking project as an opportunity uh, to help get it engaged in collaborative research, to help uh, support the transition to more sustainable fishing practices, and also to secure long-term access for Maine fishing communities. So we just purchased a couple of these permits, and we're working with the guys in Port Clyde right now uh, with one of the permits to do some work on some cod end um, that Glenn can probably talk a little bit more in detail about because he did some of that work last year. But in a nutshell, our goal is to work directly with the fishermen to uh, develop uh, cleaner fishing methods uh, to restore the groundfish populations, and uh, hopefully that will benefit uh, the health of the Gulf of Maine ecosystem and the fishing communities that depend on them. Okay, very good. Uh, so if I were a fisherman and I was interested in trying to get some, uh, some of this funding, do I have to come up with a proposal first to uh, uh, that, that would be, to uh, first of all, it's, uh, that would be the, the best way to move forward would be to come forward with an idea. It certainly wouldn't need to be a formal proposal uh, we're also working pretty closely with the folks at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute down in Portland, but there are uh, researchers throughout the state of Maine, um, and if a fisherman has an idea uh, that is consistent with this, I think they just pick up the phone, give us a call, and say, I've got an idea, and I'd like to explore it through a research project, and we would uh, 
do what we could to facilitate a discussion between the fishermen and the researcher who might be able to uh, turn it into an actual research project. Okay. Well, let's let's go over to Glenn now then, and uh, I think Glenn will probably have some specific examples of just what you were talking about. Glenn, you there? Yes, I'm right here. Okay. Welcome to Boat Talk, Glenn. Thank you. Thank Good morning, you. Glenn. Good morning, Jeff. So, Jeff, uh, just what, what are you guys doing with this program that uh, Jeff is developing? Um, well, we're using, what we've done is uh, we're using the permit that's been purchased. Up until now, whenever you did uh, research, we're, we're managed under a system called Days at Sea, I think a lot of people know about. And you had to use your own Days at Sea to go do the research. I did it last year. We had 48 days to fish last year for the groundfish season and i used 12 of those to do the research we got compensated of course but uh it took away from your actual fishing time because we didn't catch a lot of fish while we were doing research now with the permit banking it's extra work for people people are actually able to use the days at sea off of the purchased permit and reserve their own for uh their fishing activity so it it's a way to boost income and try to find ways to uh, restore the groundfish fishery at the same time. Glenn, when you say you're doing research, what are you doing? We're testing out different cod end configurations. It's actually ideas that came from our own group, and it's tied to uh, basically everything we do. It comes out of the area management plan that we all supported. Um, we're basically trying to be more selective with our catch, which means leaving the small fish in the ocean. It's kind of like borrowing a page from the lobster industry where they throw them back, where they throw the small ones back. The only trouble with fish is if you bring them up to the surface, a lot of times they don't survive because it's really deep water. So the way to get around that is is to not catch them in the first place. Interesting. Can we talk, uh, let's uh, zoom in and zoom out, as we kind of say navigationally-wise nowadays. In Port Clyde, uh, hasn't there been kind of new infrastructure down there? Didn't you build a co-op dock and... um, some hasn't there been some action on the waterfront down at Port Clyde? Yes, there is. We've uh, we were fortunate to get uh, a grant through the state and some other private funders to take advantage of the work and waterfront program. So we've got a new dock in partnership with the Lobster Co-op, and now you have all your fisheries in Port Clyde basically in one spot, and it's preserved for a uh, well, supposedly forever for future generations. And this permit banking, like Jeff was talking about, securing access for the long term is the next logical step in this. Because if we, you know, you can build all the docks you want if nobody can afford to buy permits due to the rising cost of the things, as consolidation happens a lot of times with, the, you know, with quota systems or days at sea or whatever you have. It's been happening with days at sea. Permits become unreachable for a lot of new entrants into the fishery. Permit banking will allow that uh, as we grow this program. It'll it'll keep access in a town or in an area or in a state for now and for the future. So it's it's really a forward-looking thing. The other thing we've been working on is setting up our own processing down here to go along with it to try to boost, uh, boost prices to uh, in anticipation of... Uh, next year's fisheries management plan which is going to involve quotas and by all indications the quotas are going to be small so we need to find a way for the fishermen to get more out of what they catch in order to make it through these transition you know through these couple of years of transition until the sectors get up and run in full steam 
Interesting. The uh, sorry, give you the people at the Fisherman's Voice newspaper. They have a uh, kind of a theme that they uh, harp on. We're thinking sort of like uh, you know you and your boat going out to sea, but there's a lot more people involved. There's infrastructure that's necessary. You got to have the dock. You got to have the processors. There's the you know all the families involved. It's it's a uh, like I say it's a it's a bit of a web, just like you know the web of the ecology, isn't it? Yes, it is, and you've also got to have a willingness by the customers to pay a little bit more to preserve their own fleets and their own communities and their own state, because oftentimes it's, uh, you know, we what we're charging for what we're processing is the actual cost of catching the things, and uh, it's often higher than what you would see from something that's imported. So it's a willingness by the consumer, and it's an awful lot of work by a lot of people involved, but the other thing that's happening is we're also providing jobs that didn't exist before in a bad economy, so there's pluses all around. Yeah, so oh, don't forget the part that the fish quality is a lot better, though, Glenn. People might be paying a little bit more, but I know firsthand from some of the fish I got from you, the quality is uh, good as can be. Well, we just took fish off a boat just before I got on the air here, and they're being filleted now, so that's about as quick a turnaround as you can get. Nice. People are getting a much better product, and absolutely for for myself, I'm very happy to see you people putting your heads together and coming up with your own better solutions than the government doing it. Well, I appreciate that, and I have to say that I'm I'm just amazed at the people I'm lucky enough to work with. I mean, there's a uh, there's a lot of bad news out there in the groundfish fishery, and the ability of, for people like Glenn and others uh, up and down the coast of Maine to remain optimistic and creative on ways to get ourselves out of this mess is uh, is really uh, inspiring to me, and it's just a pleasure to be able to work with guys like Glenn and other folks in Port Clyde and up and down the coast. But the bottom line is keep the government out of it as much as possible. I have a friend who's an offshore fisherman, and he one day got uh, about 300 pounds of fish over his limit. He called in the fisheries department to ask them, what he could do with them. Could he sell them or give them to another boat? Uh-oh. Could he bring them ashore and give them away? They said, no, throw them overboard. And they're dead. That's from the government. Dead and gone and wasted. Just gone and wasted instead of being somebody using their head. Yeah. Um, like I say, we zoomed into Port Clyde a minute ago. Let's zoom out now. Uh, we share the Gulf of Maine with the Canadians, just for example. Um you know, they've, this problem um, of fisheries is kind of worldwide in its own way, and um, there's got to be a lot of other people looking at solutions here. Can we learn from other people? For instance, uh, you know, uh, the Canadians, particularly the Newfoundlanders, how's things going down there? Glenn, you want to take a shot at that? or I don't have anything to <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't pretend to be an expert on uh, U.S. fisheries, much less on Canadian fisheries, but I do know that their cod populations uh, collapsed back in the early 1990s and that they shut that fishery down completely for better part of 15 years, and there, there still hasn't been any uh, significant recovery on the cod populations up there in Newfoundland, and I think that's why uh, people like Glenn and us are interested in trying to do something a little more proactive and not get ourselves into a situation where... Uh, the populations get so low that they can't recover even if you shut the fishery down completely. So developing this more selective gear that allows the babies out and lets them grow up to make uh, more fish before we catch them, I think is one of the important steps in order to uh, 
to help prevent that type of scenario happening here in the Gulf of Maine. Yeah, I believe a few years ago, um, it was thought that the cod had rebounded down in Newfoundland, and the people were were clamoring to let them go out and catch them. And uh, but I don't believe that it, you know, it really did. And so anyway, like I say, uh, you know, do we need to reinvent the wheel, or can we look at what other people's uh, you know design efforts too? Is all I'm asking here. Yeah. Well, I, I think we can always to... learn from other folks, but you know, I, I, part of the thing Glenn was mentioning was about the area management uh, program that we we're all trying to get through. Uh, I think you can certainly learn lessons from other parts of the uh, Gulf of Maine and from other countries, but you really have to tailor the program to the ecological conditions and the socioeconomic conditions that you're dealing with. So I think it's good to look around for other ideas, but uh, I think homegrown ideas are good as well. So, Jeff, um, are any of these or most of these research areas you're you're looking for sort of uh, gear-oriented, or are you doing uh, any sort of... Well, I guess statistical research or anything? We're, we're, we're trying to do a little bit of both. The first uh, project that we got on the water was a gear research project with the guys in Port Clyde, but um, the folks in Stonington that we're working with, Penobscot East Resource Center, they're also interested in uh, getting some research going with a permit that we uh, partnered with them on. And there what we're trying to do is, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, trying to get a better sense of the distribution and abundance of fish along the coastal shelf, particularly in eastern Maine, uh, as we all know, there's not a lot of ground fish activity going on down in that part of the world these days. Uh, the trawl survey doesn't really sample a lot of those areas particularly well for a number of reasons. So the idea we're exploring now is there a way to get a sentinel hook fishery or a longline fishery out there to sort of complement the work that's being done uh, through the main trawl survey to get a better understanding of how many fish are out there and where they are. So there is also uh, an ecological aspect of some of the research that we're working on uh, we haven't gotten that project up and running yet, but um, hopefully we'll be able to do that sometime soon, and we can have some ecological research uh, happening as well as some of the gear research we're working on with the guys in Port Clyde. Glenn, you've been fishing for a while? 33 years. Yeah, um, and you've seen kind of seen some changes, haven't you? Yes. Uh, when I started fishing right now, we'd be fishing right up along the shore right now, catching more fish in a day than what it, what you can get in two or three days now. So, and the species makeup is different. You know, the start, the fish used to come in. All the species used to come in shore in great numbers, and we haven't seen that in a long time. So you have to go certainly. Where do you fish nowadays? You got to steam at a minimum about four hours one way to get to where there is anything. And uh, is some of the places where we anticipated seeing fish. Uh, inside what we call the 11-mile ridge after the rolling closure went off. So far, it's just been barren, pretty much. There's not nothing moved up in there this year, so that's even a further decline in that aspect. But in other places, there's a lot of fish, but it's it's still, it's it's got a long ways to go before it looks anything like it did, uh, you know, 30 or so years ago. What uh, What's the fisherman's opinion on... Uh Closures, uh, you know, uh, for certain species at certain times, particularly, uh, you know, when they're, you know, laying their eggs and so forth. The the state of Maine's actually done a pretty good job with that. They've got a seasonal. They've got two closures. <coughs> uh, one is in the spring, 
And if the fish were there like they used to be, like I talked about, those fish would have been in those places laying their eggs then. That, that's what needs to be restored is that migration of the fish coming ashore and laying their eggs in their spawning grounds where they used to. And that doesn't happen. I'm afraid we won't see any real recovery until we can get that system working again. Uh, area management was uh, designed to help make that happen. Um, everything that we're doing is geared toward trying to restore that. Uh, the, the closures will work if you've got the fish there. A lot of times right now the closures are just closing an area and there's nothing there to protect. So we've got to get the fish back in there, and then I think you'll see the closures as they're designed now have some real impact. Yeah, I think the only other thing I'd add to that is what I've heard in talking to a number of fishermen is they understand the value of spawning closures to protect that spawning activity and the eggs. Uh, but as Glenn said, you know, if the uh, they'd rather see them designed such that when the fish are in there and spawning, you close it, and whether or not it can be opened up. And it seems like a lot of the closures that we have in place now are based on a, a calendar, calendar day rather than uh, when the fish show up and start to spawn. And so I think they'd like to see some modification of those closures. But most of the ones I talk to uh, see the value in the closure. They just want to make sure they're at the right time and for the right reasons. I'm interested in what Glenn said about the species mix changing, you know, and I uh, studied ecology at college, and, and it's not a linear problem, you know. It's it's a web where everything uh, kind of affects everything else. And if you remove one species, somebody else will, will uh, come along to fill the niche. I guess there's more sharks, for instance, in the Gulf well, of Maine. Well, it's, it's not so much that. I, I remember the first year I ever went fishing, there was a ton of dogfish, and there still are. Uh, you know, that may have changed. One thing we have discovered with the cod end research is that we're letting most of them out. Well, it's a, we're letting an enormous amount of stuff through the nets as they're designed already. Uh, we're basically just trying to tweak that to get just to the next level, and I don't think we have to go too far. But we used to see a lot of flounders around here, the dabs, the American place, and uh, those, are, at least around here, are pretty severely depleted from what they used to be. I mean, that was our bread and butter fishery, and that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, you go down east of ways, uh, some of the boats are fishing down outside of Isla Hall right now, offshore, and there's a lot of pollock, and uh, which is kind of interesting because uh, pollock is one of the things that's supposed to be depleted. Haddock is supposed to be fully rebuilt, and we can't find enough to fill any orders. So uh, I, I, I don't know exactly what that means but uh, it seems like maybe the science needs to be checked or something uh, maybe we're just uh, it's easy to think there's a lot of something when you're catching it uh, maybe everybody else isn't I don't know that that that's happening in a lot of places uh, down to the west it off <coughs> New Hampshire and places like that down around Jeffries in the open area and middle bank places like that when the closures go off they get a lot of codfish and haddock but we're not seeing them here, so those guys think the fishing is in great shape, and it is there for a while, but uh, up here it's not. So that's where area management comes back into play. I've been doing boat deliveries for about the last 20 years, do a lot of time out in the Gulf of Maine, and I tell you, there's not as much traffic as there used to be by a long shot, fishing boat-wise. And then down uh, to the southern, uh, next month we'd uh, hope to talk to Captain Sam Cottle, he uh, did his career out of Point Judith, wrote a great book called In Danger at Sea about his uh, family uh, over the years, you know, and, and uh, 
boy, I tell you, there's nothing in the water down there, although there are a lot of boats coming and going out of, of course, uh, New Gloucester and, uh, Gloucester and Bedford, New Bedford and that kind of places. But things, is, like I say, changing everywhere. Yeah, I've, I've actually read the book. I drew a lot of parallels between his experiences and what we've seen here and the way it is now. Yeah, we'd love to. We're trying to talk to Sam. We tried to get him this morning, but he had to go to the doctor. Going to try to talk to him next month. So, and it is excellent. It's called In Danger at yeah, Sea. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. Uh, great book. There's still a lot of boats out of Point Judith. Don't, don't know how they're doing, but so Glenn, you you're pointing out to me what seems like a there is definitely a need to uh, do some research to see what these changes are and where things are going and, and how you can best take advantage of it without without hurting it. So uh, if people do want to get more involved in doing research, what I wonder is um, must take some special gear to, to uh, fish counts or uh, uh, watching your trawls or whatever it is that you have to do for research. Um, how, how do you pay f- or how do you get money for the uh, extra gear that you have to get to do research? Well, I think that's a good question for Jeff. <laughs> The, uh, you know, the other folks we're working with, like the Island Institute, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, now the Nature Conservancy, uh, they're really good at raising funds for things like this and uh, helping us to realize what we want to see on the water. I mean, like I said before, the ideas came from our fishermen, and they're helping to make it happen. One of the things that happened when we were promoting the area management plan that some of these gear changes were included in was we were told continuously by regulators that uh, well yeah that'll probably work and it sounds like a good idea but we don't have any science to prove it so we're kind of taking the long way around here and uh, waiting for the next round of uh, arguments when it comes to bringing area trotting area management back out into the spotlight that uh, now we do have some science, so that's that's the hope anyway, and maybe we can get some of these things adopted as management measures. But uh, the important thing is, is our guys are doing a lot of these things voluntarily as part of our marketing. Um, where you know that's that's one of the things that we require with our uh, with what we're doing with uh, selling fish, that they have to do these things voluntarily. And the hope was that we could get enough people creating similar projects and doing their own things that they liked voluntarily, and we would have an impact on the resource without having to involve the government at all. And uh, it seems to be working, because the idea of the community-supported fisheries and things like that is spreading, and it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, and it, it does a couple things. It has a positive impact on the resource, and it also brings in the public. It gives them an opportunity to actually participate in this. And we... By doing this, if we get enough people doing it, ultimately you'll end up driving regulation in a certain way, a way that you want to see, especially if it's successful. Something else we haven't kind of laid on the table yet. I mean, over the years, uh, fishermen and scientists, the so-called research community, haven't always smiled at each other, have they? No, that's for sure. But I have to say, uh, I'll let Glenda speak this in just a second, but... Um, I've been doing this stuff for about 10 years, and I had the opportunity to get involved with the Northeast Consortium, which is a, a group out of University of New Hampshire. And the, the specific purpose of that uh, effort was to get fishermen and scientists, uh, research scientists, working closer together on projects just like the one we're talking about today with Glenn. And to me, you know, that the collaborative research has really been one of the, 
the bright spots in the ground fish fishery here over the past decade. And I, I think that the more people get to work together um, on projects like this, uh, you can build some trust. Uh, you can understand where the other guys are coming from and hopefully, uh, you know, be able to work better moving forward. So I, I, I don't disagree with you that uh, historically there's been some uh, tension in those relationships. There's also been some tension in the relationships between fishermen and conservation groups. And I hope that uh, this project can help to show that fishermen and scientists and conservation groups can all work together uh, towards some common goals. And I think that's what we're doing here. Well, I've learned some stuff here this morning that sounds good to me. And uh, I'd like to see you people working together, and you're going to get the best results. Thanks. Well, Glenn, um, we're going to open up our phone lines to other people to call in, which means we're going to have to let you go. I got one one other thing okay. I'd like to, like to lay on Glenn here. Glenn, uh, you know, you started out as a fisherman, it seems to me. Now you're not only a fisherman, you're a researcher, but you're also kind of a politician nowadays, aren't you? You're, aren't you on the National Marine Fisheries Council? I just got appointed to it, yes. I, yeah. uh, think Congratulations, Glenn. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've lost my mind or not. <laughs> well, like I say, it's not just easy to be a fisherman anymore, is it? Not, not a simple, straightforward, linear problem, is it? Well, we spent a lot of years complaining about what they are doing to us. And that included uh, fish buyers, uh, the way the market was, the government, and as Jeff said, conservationists. And after a while, you get tired of complaining and decide that it's time to actually do something to try to make some positive changes. So that that has led me to uh, throw my hat into the ring, if you will. And I'm fortunate to have the support of all the members of the Midcoast Fishermen's Association. They are uh, fully behind everything that we're doing. And uh, without that kind of support, I'd just be another voice in the crowd. So it's it's not just me. It's is representing all these guys and their hopes and dreams for the future. Well, my hat's off to you. Yes. Thank you. Well, yeah. thank you very And Before we say goodbye, Glenn, why, uh, you probably have a contact information number for uh, the Midcoast Fishermen's Association. Uh, the best thing would be just go to our website. It's uh, midcoastfishermen.org. Okay, very it's good. Fishermen, midcoastfishermen.org. Very good. All Thank right. you. Thank Thanks you, this morning, Glenn. Back to them dead fish. <laughs> Going back to work. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Glenn. Good morning. All right, that opens up uh, one phone line, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We still have Jeff Smith of the Nature Conservancy on there. Yeah, and Jeff mentioned uh, uh, the Penobscot East Resource Center, and and uh, Aaron Doherty and I have been talking. He's listening, and he may call in, and also uh, you know some other people further down east. So. Uh, you know, there's the phone ringing right now. Go figure. Figure. <laughs> right on time. Yeah. And again, it's uh, not a simple problem, and people have been struggling it for a long time. And, and like you say, you got your fishermen, you got your scientists, you got your uh, conservationists. They've all been pointing fingers and mad at each other. And, you know. Yep. Well, as I said before, that to me, that's uh, one of the best parts of this project is uh, working together. You know, we're, we're never, no, nobody's going to be able to do this on their own, but if we're all. Uh, trying to achieve a common goal, which I think is bringing the fish back and helping the fishing community survive, then I think we can get this done. Yes, helping us help ourselves. We do have a phone call, so let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, thanks. Uh, I'm not going to hold on too long here, but uh, Dave, uh, uh, sorry, I missed your cruise. Oh, uh, yep. Anyhow, another year. Uh, I'm 
I'm interested in the aspect, in this whole aspect, actually, but especially I'm thinking about the, uh, the natural preserve that has been located off uh, a ways uh, out by the, uh, the, the uh, Grand Banks uh, that's a protected uh, spawning zone. And I heard recently on another one of these shows that uh, there had been uh, dragging going on in actually in that area. And um, I just wondered, what do we make of that? I mean, you know, here's, you know, like one of the reasons, that, as I understand, I did a little long line and was, was uh, uh, an extraordinary oceanographer at one point. And uh, we, we did it all by hand because he believed that was the way to do it. And we caught some awful good fish, but that was before the halibut went away. Um, and he had to go out of business. Uh, but, you know, we talked a lot about the draggers and what it does to the bottom and what that does to the spawning grounds, and here we have presented our little fishes with, you know, a little bit of land where it's not supposed to be dragged, where they can have their rough terrain that they need to hide from the old eels and whoever else is out looking for them and, uh, you know, grow to be bigger. And, um, uh... I'm I'm reminded of a story a friend of mine told us on just one story. Uh, uh, we used to work with a group that was uh, uh, working for uh, the the fish for the benefit of the fish in the ocean, and he was down in one of those uh, islands in the Caribbean at one point. And the fishermen there uh, in this bay had had a lot of trouble with their stock declining, and uh, it was because it was being you know really intensively swept. And there wasn't any place for the fish to, to live. And they, uh, I believe they sunk a bunch of blocks of granite down in there. Hmm. And uh, it made it, you know, technically impossible or unfeasible or at least uh, costly to drag that area. And uh, next time this guy was by, you know, a couple of years later, they were hauling fish out off of the docks and, you know, back to life as, as usual, catching fish for their families. And uh, you know, uh, uh, it was an interesting little piece of piece of news. So I'll leave it at that. And, uh, the ocean's a hard place to police, you know. Yeah, it's a hard place to keep your eye on it all the time. And of course, anybody, uh, you know, why do people steal stuff? Because they can, you know. If you put a fish in front of a fisherman, he's going to be awful tempted to catch it. And again, you can't police that. Notice Linda Greenlaw got nabbed for. Uh, fishing in Canadian waters over the line, just for instance, you know, and, uh, you know, like I say, it's hard to uh, uh, regulate places in the ocean, so. Yeah, so. I'm not familiar with that uh, place on the Grand Banks you were mentioned, and I, I can't say that I know uh, from my discussions with Glenn that one of the things that they're looking at doing um, with the gear research they're doing there is not only uh, modifying the trawl end, but also trying to lighten up some of the ground gear uh, to get that trawl a little lighter on the bottom. So it's, uh, there's, there's a number of different aspects to that uh, research that are uh, still to come on that, but I'm not familiar with the area in the Grand Banks you were mentioning. Do we put a camera right on these trawls to see what happens? Uh, I know they certainly can. I know uh, with the researcher that we're working with at Gulf of Maine Research Institute, he's interested in, uh, in trying to get a camera on the, the research trawls that we're doing. My understanding is that the... Uh, the water they're working in is quite deep and quite muddy, so it's uh, hard to get a good picture of what's going on down there when you get a depth without a lot of light. So uh, depending on where you are and uh, the substrate you're towing across, uh, it's going to depend 
or it's going to influence a lot whether you can see what's going on in that net, but uh, certainly something that can be done. Interesting, because again, underwater, out of sight, and they put a lobster, uh, they put a video camera in a lobster trap a few years ago, and they were quite surprised by what they found, you know. And it's different. That's not moving. Yeah, it's not moving. But not again, moving. Uh, out of sight, underwater, and and uh, you know, we kind of need to understand better exactly what's happening there. Yeah, they have done some of it. Well, we do have another phone call. Let's let's go to that. Good morning, and welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. This is Aaron from Penobscot East Resource Center. Oh, hello, Aaron. Good morning, Aaron. Now, uh, what do you think Aaron. about the discussion so far? Um, I, I uh, think you're all right on target. Um, uh, the work that uh, the Nature Conservancy is uh, doing with the Midcoast fishermen and, and with us, I think, is great work. I appreciate the support of the Nature Conservancy in, in helping to uh, make this whole idea of permanent banking possible. You guys are working together. We are, yeah. Uh, the Penobscot East Resource Center works to secure a future for fishing communities between the islands of the Penobscot Bay and the Canadian Line. And uh, this is an area of about 3,000 fishermen, and only 24 of them have uh, ground fish permits at this point. You know, Historically, ground fish was a, an important part of fisheries in eastern Maine. Uh, but because of uh, depletion on the coastal shelf that Jeff talked about earlier, and because of the regulatory changes um, that you all have been discussing as well over the past 15 years, it's been those rights to go fishing in uh, their own backyard have been whittled away to the point of, of almost zero now. And that's why permit banking really is, is the, uh, the only uh, opportunity to, to rebuild a sustainable fishery in eastern Maine for groundfish. Wow, and let's let's zoom out and even time trip here. I mean, fishing is is basically what attracted people here in the first place. The incredible abundance of the Gulf of Maine, uh, you know, back in the colonial days, uh, was just stunning. You, by some reports, just barely get your boat through the codfish, you know. And well, look where we are now. But what's the basic reason for that? That's <laughs> that's the uh, that's we the big question. Em. We ate them. We ate them. <laughs> And we wasted a lot of them, and and the and the ecosphere, or the ecology has is, is changed a little but bit. You too, have I a tremendous say. population you didn't have two hundred years yeah. ago, yeah. and they all want fresh fish. Yeah. Well, I think if you look at the fishing gear over those uh, over those years, there's been dramatic increases in technology, and and part of what we're doing with permit banking is recognizing that we need to protect the coastal shelf. And one of the ways to do that is with uh, inten intentional inefficiencies in technology. And that's why, you know, you've got the, the mid-coast fishermen that are using uh, larger mesh sizes and nets that are uh, lighter on the bottom. They're not catching as much fish, uh, but they're, they're leaving more of the juveniles there. And with the work that we're doing, we're going to be using hooks only um, on, the, on the coastal shelf with this uh, permit that we purchased. And, uh, and and that way, we're you know we're only going to catch uh, certain fish, and, and we can hopefully um, limit the size range of fish that we're catching with the uh, size of hook. So it's it's really trying to leave the, the same way the lobster fishery leaves um, the bigger brood stock and and uh, the juveniles and the and the um, the egg bearing lobsters. We want to leave the spawning fish and others in the water. Yes, sir. But one thing uh, about tub trawling, which I have done years ago, mm -hmm. is that you've got to have closures at, uh, at, at uh, certain times when fish are going to be 
depositing their eggs. Mm -hmm. I had an experience years ago where uh, I caught over 4,000 pounds of prime haddock when there wasn't any around. And I was more or less shocked at what I'd done. And uh, they were all, you know, egg-bearing haddock. And so you're I, the reason we don't see any more haddock. Yeah, right? I, 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 yeah, yeah, well, could be, but I didn't, never felt good about it. Yeah. And I didn't want that to happen again. And uh, I tried to, to avoid that on my own. And I was never happy about it. And if they'd, if just stop and think, if that place I'd been fishing was closed, those fish had all laid their eggs and, you know, bread and there'd been probably quite a bit of survival. Well, that's the basic point. If you don't, you know, if you don't let the, the fish spawn, then you don't get any fish the next generation. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's try to uh, reiterate another point we make repeatedly on boat talk about the lobster fishery. Um, you know, we talk about putting back the, the agers and, and uh, you know, protecting the broodstock. But in a way, I kind of think of it as agriculture. Um, they kind of feed those lobsters, um, you know, all the bait that goes into the ocean. Um, and again, the lobster trap video uh, revealed that lobsters flock to a lobster trap on the bottom and, and they fight over the bait. And 96% of them can come in and out. And I've always thought of those uh, lobster traps ever since as hay bales thrown into a pasture, you know. And um, I don't know if you can feed bottom fish, but again, you gotta you got to encourage the ecology of the whole thing, and it's complicated. Yeah, I think there's been a, a lot of efforts going on in the Gulf of Maine now to uh, try and protect some of the, the forage base out, the herring and the mackerel and some of the other uh, forage species that... Um, that the ground fish depend on. I, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where you could do something similar with a lobster fishery to provide the forage uh, for the ground fish, but uh, protecting those wild stocks of forage fish out there is something a lot of people have dedicated a lot of time to and trying to get the herring back inshore and uh, do things for some of those other forage fish so that ground fish have something to eat. The other piece of that is the Penobscot River, too. There's uh, a lot of work, and I, I know you at the Nature Conservancy are working on that, too. Um, with the, the, the dams that are slated to come down on the Penobscot River that would open up uh, miles of, uh, of river for anatomous fish, the, um, everything from... Can I ask you a question river. about the removal of dams? Because I don't know enough about it. Why, why instead of removing uh, the dams, why didn't you just have lift boxes for the fish? Well, I think that there are lift boxes on a number of the dams, but... Uh, I think the the bottom line is is that some of they uh, they work well for some species of fish and they don't work so well for other species of fish. So uh, the, certainly there's been uh, lift boxes and there's been uh, trap and truck and a number of uh, different ways to try and move fish past these dams. But uh, we think that opening that lower section of that river up and giving a, a bunch of different species of fish access to waters further upstream is going to help restore the health of the river and also. Uh, put some more of those fish out of there in the ocean. Okay. The, the term, right. the term uh, andromedous fish was just thrown out, and that is a fish that uh, has one part of its life in freshwater and the other part in alewives would be a good example. Yeah, alewives, shad, river herring, a number of different species. Yeah, and again, very important to the web of the ecology. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Aaron, while we got you on the phone here, tell me one more thing. I don't want to confuse the issue, but you mentioned that uh, some permits... Come without fish? 
Well, um, so just a, 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 I guess a quick history of, of permits. Uh, originally, when many of the fishermen um, in eastern Maine and, on, and along the New England coast started fishing, uh, if you talk to uh, many of the older fishermen, they started fishing before there were permits. And it was uh, an open access fishery for a while where you could uh, just say, okay, I want a permit to go fishing, and then at that point you, uh, you could continue. Um, it was turned into limited access, which, like the name says, limited the number of, of people who went fishing. And from that point on, which is about 1994, for the next uh, 15 years, they gradually cut back on the number of days that you could fish. So if you start out with, say, 88 days, um, it gets whittled down until uh, last year fishermen had about 48 days. This year most fishermen have about 40 days. So we're, we're at a point now where there's very few days on a permit. Now the catch for eastern Maine is that um, because there was long-term depletion on the coastal shelf, there just simply were not fish to catch inshore where these small boats would go. When they didn't go, they lost the days at sea on their permits um, even faster. So there are permits out there that have zero days at sea on them or huh. have five days or very few days where they're essentially uh, useless. Huh. Yeah. But you still have to pay for them. Well, I mean, those are the only people who are, who are able to go fishing anymore, those 24, but in order for them to go, they have to pay to get more days or they have to uh, join the, a new type of management system that's starting up pretty soon. And again, this days at sea, let's say we can go to sea 40 days. That's not any 40 days. That you get a choice of some days, and you get forty out of those, and and the weather might be bad, mm. you know. Yeah, the weather's certainly a factor. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Like I say, multi-dimensional problem. Um, Aaron, contact uh, information for the uh, Penobscot East Resource Center. Sure. Uh, you can go online at www.penobscoteast, all one word, .org, and you could give us a call as well if you'd like at three six seven. Two seven zero eight, and uh, my email. If you want to reach me directly, is Aaron. That's A A R O N at PenobscotEast.org. And we're going to be having uh, an event in Stonington at the Stonington Lobster Co-op on uh, next Monday, uh, which is the twentieth, I believe, at noon, um, celebrating the, the purchase of this uh, first permit for our new permit bank. Huh. Uh, we're running out of time here on Boat Talk. That's why I'm trying to, uh, you know, make sure uh, we uh, touch base with you guys. Jeff, uh, how do we get a hold of you at the Nature Conservancy? Uh, you can reach us on the web at www.nature.org backslash Maine, like the great state of Maine, or you can uh, call me here at 207-729-5181. Well, can't thank you guys enough this morning. I uh, believe uh, besides Giffy, I learned something, too, and like I say, it's a complicated business. Well, I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to come on and uh, share this with you all and your listeners, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon, and we can tell you how the research has been going. Oh, good, good. I have one more question for you. Uh, Jeff, just before the end, is, uh, so uh, supposedly after a year or two, this research uh, starts to show something that's uh, going to be beneficial. How, how is the, uh, the results of this going to be carried forward? Well, the plan is to uh, to do the research for a few years. I think Glenn mentioned that you know that there's been questions about the the benefits of different net configurations or what we might learn on the ecological side. But ultimately, uh, the hope is to bring that to the managers and to say, look, we've found uh, 
We found some better gear technologies that still allow fishermen to catch a fair number of fish while letting the small ones out or lighten things up on the bottom. Um, so ultimately, to have it uh, impact more people, we'll probably be going through the New England Fisheries Management Council and asking them to uh, create some regulations around the research that we've done. We've got Glenn, who's got a seat on there now, which is a good thing. But uh, that's a few years out, and right now we just want to uh, do this research and see if we can come up with something that makes sense um, and then bring it up through the management system if it's appropriate. Well, very good. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, coming and <coughs> talking with us on Boat Talk today. I assume we can probably keep up with what you're doing on, uh, in, by reading Working Waterfront, too, the Island Institute newsletter. Yes, sir. All right, very good. Yep, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, take care. Oh, boy, they're playing the music in the background, Alan. They're going to squeeze us out, but we haven't even mentioned the Boat Talk cruise yet. Uh, no. Last uh, June 27th, which what was a stunning too. success. And uh, I wrote up a little report, including recipes, and uh, it's on the web at BoatTalk.org. You might like to check that out, especially if you're on the cruise or if you missed it. We are sorry for it if you missed it. And... Uh, you want to stay tuned for, uh, again, we are Three leaving the air. <laughs> we are leaving the air to uh, do a little transmitter maintenance for WERU here. And, uh, you know, keep checking. We'll be back on the air as soon as we can. Boat Talks the second Tuesday every month. And, uh, you know, we have too much fun doing it. Other, uh, for instance, the first Tuesday is uh, the ISM Prism. There's always something different. Uh, the uh, third Tuesday is Native American Voices, a uh, new program on that. And... Just for instance, all different at community radio, WERU. And there's nothing apparently we can't talk about or to. And we thank you for listening. And you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. We will be signing off now. We plan to be back within an hour or two.